The scripture reading for today comes from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You can be seated, and good morning again. Welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin. If I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet, we are back in our sermon series uh, through the book of Acts called The World Turned Upside Down. You know, wherever the early Christians went, they turned things upside down. Wherever the gospel message goes, it turns things upside down. Dry deserts become pools of water. Barrenness becomes fruitfulness. Those who are cut off are welcomed in. The gospel turns things upside down, and today's passage is no exception. The gospel turns things upside down for the Ethiopian eunuch when the Holy Spirit leads Philip to share it with him. And we're in a section of Acts where the gospel message is spreading beyond Jerusalem. And uh, so far, we've mostly read about groups of people responding to the gospel. The Jews in Jerusalem who respond to Peter's sermon at Pentecost, or the Gentiles in Samaria who respond to Philip sharing the gospel with them. But over the next three weeks, we will see how the gospel message impacted specific individuals. Today, we'll talk about the Ethiopian eunuch, next week the Apostle Paul, and then after that, Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion. But again, today, we're going to be looking more closely at the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And as we do so, we'll have three points. Number one, eunuchs. Number two, evangelism. And number three, an everlasting name. So let's begin with our first point, eunuchs. Uh, In our passage, an angel of the Lord says to Philip in verse 26, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And what does Philip do? He obeys. 
He doesn't ask questions. He doesn't say, hey, I don't really want to go into the desert. Where am I going to find water? Doesn't demand more information. Verse 27 just says that he obeys. And Philip rose and went. But it's about to become clear why Philip is being led down this desert road between Jerusalem and Gaza. Uh, Still in verse 27 and through 28. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And eventually we know that Philip is going to have a conversation with this man about Jesus and the gospel. But before we get to that, who is this man? What do we know about him? A lot, actually. We know that he is an Ethiopian, which probably doesn't refer to modern-day Ethiopia, but still refers to that upper Nile region of Africa, sometimes called Nubia. And so this man is a black African. We also know that he's a court official for the queen of the Ethiopians. He was in charge of all her treasure, her money. You know, he's the treasury secretary, you could say. He's in the queen's cabinet. And uh, he was one of the most powerful officials, most likely, among the Ethiopians. We also know that he's spiritually open. He's spiritually curious. You could say he's spiritually fascinated. You know, he's not a Jew. He's not a convert to Christianity either. Uh, But he's returning to Ethiopia from going to Jerusalem, which is something like a thousand miles away. And he's making that 1,000-mile journey home from Jerusalem uh, because, well, it says in verse 27, because he had gone there to worship. You know, he had heard that there was a God to worship in Israel, and he had made this treacherous journey through the desert to Israel's temple in order to try and worship. And uh, on his return trip, verse 28 says that he's riding in his chariot reading the Hebrew scriptures, the prophet Isaiah specifically. And so there's significant spiritual openness in this man, in this African court official who journeyed all the way to Jerusalem to to worship. And so why is he so spiritually open? At the end of the day, he's so spiritually open because the Holy Spirit has made him spiritually open and stirred something within him. But there are also practical reasons that we can see why this man would be so spiritually open. And of course, he's multifaceted. There's probably many things Uh, that play a role in his openness, but one reason in particular that I want to focus on, and I think that our passage hints that we should focus on um, because of the specific section quoted in Isaiah, one reason that he is so spiritually open is because he's a eunuch. This man is a eunuch. Now, eunuchs were men who had been castrated. They were sexually altered. So this man from Ethiopia is a eunuch. He had been castrated. He had been sexually altered, and that likely, and he likely was made a eunuch because he served in the queen's court. This was actually a common practice throughout various eras of history. When someone who was not of royal descent began working in the royal court, often they would be castrated. This would be to ensure that these non-royals Uh, who were suddenly spending so much time around the royal family would not develop a romantic interest or have children with royal family members because that might lead to a conflict of interest or a future betrayal. So they would make these servants eunuchs, asexual, disinterested in sex, unable to produce children, cut off from future generations or descendants. Their line would end with them, And they would have nothing to focus on except serving in the royal court. And this isn't the first time in uh, scripture that eunuchs are talked about. 
Um, there's actually good reason to believe that Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were made eunuchs when they began working for the king of Babylon and his court. Um, there's not an explicit verse that says, and they were made eunuchs, but it's heavily implied if you read Daniel. They, they were slaves, outsiders, non-royals, who were invited to work in the royal court in Babylon during a time when Babylon did practice this. And several times in Daniel chapter 1, it's actually mentioned that their immediate supervisor is the chief of the eunuchs. And so if your boss is the chief eunuch, you are also probably a eunuch yourself. Uh, There's no mention of Daniel having a wife or any kids. And so it's very likely, if you read the book of Daniel, you're reading about eunuchs serving in the king's court with nothing to focus on but serving that royal court. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus mentions eunuchs in Matthew 19. Uh, The disciples think that Jesus' teachings on marriage and divorce are so difficult that they wonder, would it be better not to marry at all? And so Jesus responds in Matthew 19, verses 11 and 12. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Essentially what Jesus is saying is that there's eunuchs who are born that way. There's eunuchs who have been castrated in this life by others. And... There are eunuchs who maybe not physically have been castrated, but maybe metaphorically have made themselves eunuchs to focus on nothing but serving in a different royal court, the royal court of the kingdom of heaven. And this metaphorical type of eunuch speaks more to the concern of the disciples who are are wondering if marriage is too hard. Perhaps they should make themselves eunuchs metaphorically, Jesus says, and commit themselves to celibacy for the sake of the royal court of heaven. All to say, eunuchs have been mentioned in Scripture well before our passage in Acts, and uh, there's sometimes the concept of being a eunuch can be brought up metaphorically, of someone who volitionally chooses to live like a eunuch through celibacy, even if they have not physically become one. The Ethiopian eunuch, in our passage, of course, is not one metaphorically. He really has been made physically a eunuch, and it was likely the price that he paid to get that job as the treasurer in the queen's court. You know, he had an opportunity to work in his own nation's royal court, and he made a determination that the prestige and power and money that would come through it uh, was worth it, worth the cost of becoming a eunuch. But from the trip he's made to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, and from where he's reading in Isaiah, you have to wonder if perhaps now he's second-guessing himself. Was it worth it? And we'll get into this more later on, but Think about what all he's given up, what he might regret, what he likely feels that he lacks as a eunuch. You know, don't you have empathy for the Ethiopian eunuch? Do you have empathy for those in our times who maybe you could think of as eunuchs in one way or another? You know, who are the eunuchs of our day? Do we empathize with them? Now, we don't come across those who are physically eunuchs too often in today's day and age, but it's not impossible. And uh, because this subject can often be treated as taboo, there might be more people that this term applies to than you think. It's not difficult to imagine some sort of birth defect or accident or disease that essentially makes someone a eunuch. It alters their ability to have a sexual relationship or to bear children. Or perhaps more common is someone who's physically able to have a sexual relationship, but because of some other reason, 
they've committed themselves to celibacy. Uh, could be someone who experiences same-sex attraction but tries to submit themselves to the biblical sex ethic, and so they've decided that they will not pursue their desires for same-sex relationships. They will remain celibate. Or, you know, even broadening it, single people, which all of us were at one point, even if we are married, single people live as celibate until they're married, uh, which is a sort of metaphorical type of eunuch. Uh, do you think about these people? Do you think, do you empathize with them? Do you know what it's like to have to live uh, with some sort of metaphorical eunuch status? You know, just basics of everyday life. Uh, When Holly and I were on vacation, you know, every single day, we would have to put sunscreen on each other's backs. And we had each other to do that, and so we did it. But what if you're by yourself and you need sunscreen on your back? You know, it puts you in an awkward situation. You can either let your back get burned, or in our society, a lot of times, asking someone to put sunscreen on your back is viewed as flirtatious. And so you're kind of between a rock and a hard space. These are the type of situations that often our single friends experience. Or just, you know, this next week, I'm traveling to go to our denomination's general assembly, and each step of the way, I'm going to shoot Holly a text. Made my flight, landed on time, connection was smooth, got to my hotel, da-da-da. Same thing on the way back home, because we have each other to do that. But for our single friends... You know, who do they get to text? Who do they share their location with? Who always knows that they're okay? You know, that can be a little more complicated for them. Do you have empathy for people who one way or another have to live sort of a metaphorical life of a eunuch? Who are the eunuchs of our day? How can we better love and care for them? Let's move on now to our second point, um, evangelism. Uh, In our passage, Philip, led by the Holy Spirit, evangelizes the Ethiopian eunuch. He shares the good news about Jesus, the gospel. Uh, Verse 29 says, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. And the word translated join is literally glue. The Spirit says to Philip, Go over to the chariot and glue yourself to it. Stay right next to it. Join it. And so Philip does. Verse 30, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. So the picture here is that the chariot is rolling along, and Philip runs up next to it, glues himself to it, sticks right next to it, and he's so close, in fact, that he can hear the man inside reading from the book of Isaiah. And there's a little bit of a lesson there for us. You know, often, or usually even, evangelism will require us to stick close to people to glue ourselves to them in a sense. You know, it requires persistence. It requires proximity. Uh, You have to be close enough to them to hear what they have to say, to learn what they think, to understand what their questions are, what their longings in life are. Uh, Are you sticking close enough to anyone to have an opportunity to share the gospel with them? You know, do you know what your non-believing friends have to say? Do you know what their deepest longings and desires are? Do you know what their unanswered questions are? Is there anyone you need to more intentionally glue yourself to, stick close to? Philip is close enough that he hears the man reading Isaiah. And so Philip asks, still in verse 30, do you understand what you're reading? And the man responds in verse 31, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invites Philip to come up and sit with him. And there's another lesson for us, and maybe it's obvious, but a major component of evangelism is guiding people to understanding. Philip asks, do you understand? 
And the man answers, how can I unless someone guides me? This is, you know, very similar to our reading uh, of the law from Romans 10. How can they call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How can they understand without someone guiding them? You know, the gospel of Jesus is understandable. It makes sense. There's a logic to it. It's reasonable. It, it still requires faith. It still requires belief. But it's not a belief that defies logic or defies understanding. It's a faith that is understandable. You know, a lot of times, you know, when I've been in a conversation with someone who's not a Christian, who I'm hoping to share the gospel with in some way or at some point, I found that a helpful question to ask is, what do you think that I believe? You know, what do you think that Christians believe? What, what are the fundamental tenets of the Christian faith, the gospel message? What do you think they are? And, you know, I kind of like to sort of turn the tables for a moment instead of just me rambling off all the fundamental components of a good gospel presentation, four spiritual laws. I want to actually give them a chance to tell me what their understanding of, is it, of it is currently. Because the reality is that in our day and age in the United States, a lot of people know something about Jesus or Christianity or God or the Bible. They're not starting from ground zero. Um, but often they have misconceptions or an incomplete picture they think they know what religion or gospel they're rejecting, but the answers I've often heard back from people show that they tend to picture Christianity as a much more legalistic religion, like that's all that's required is being a good person or doing more good deeds than bad, avoid premarital sex, drugs, alcohol, swearing, and, you know, I get answers like that. It's really helpful to know where to go next because I can actually surprise people by saying, oh yeah, I reject that understanding of Christianity, too. That's actually not what I believe saves someone. That's not what the gospel message is. And then I can go on and explain and guide them to understanding to ensure at the very least that they're going to reject Jesus. They're actually rejecting the real Jesus, the real gospel, not a misconception about it. Lord willing, they would come to understand and accept the gospel message, see that Jesus is their Savior. So evangelism requires guiding people to understanding. And so Philip guides the man to understanding. He sits with him in the chariot, and they look at the scripture that he is reading, which is from Isaiah. Uh, it's from Isaiah chapter 53. And the quote is in verses 32 and 33 of our passage. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation and justice uh, was denied him, who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch asks Philip, in verse 34, about whom does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And what a great question, right? You know, don't you wish someone would ask you a question like this? Philip was probably chomping at the bit to answer. Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. This passage isn't about the prophet. It's about someone else. It's about Jesus. And Philip explains it all to him. Beginning with this scripture in Isaiah, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. That means he started here in Isaiah and just kept on going. And of course, at that time, there was no New Testament. There was only the Old Testament, which means that Philip only walked through passages of the Old Testament as he explained the good news about Jesus to the Ethiopian man. And this has a very similar feel to Luke chapter 24, if you're familiar. 
uh, Luke 24, 7, the road to Emmaus, Jesus talks to some people, and in his conversation with them, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's all about Jesus. Jesus showed the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Philip shows the Ethiopian eunuch here. The Old Testament was always pointing to Jesus. And so Philip tells of how Jesus was the sheep led to the slaughter. Jesus was the lamb who stayed silent before his shears. Jesus was humiliated. Jesus was denied justice. Jesus' life was taken away from him. And why? So that those things would not have to happen to us. Because Jesus put himself in our place as a substitution to forgive our sins, to save us when we were lost, to save all who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. Philip shared with him the good news about Jesus. And did he believe it? Did he confess Jesus is Lord? Well, apparently he did because Philip baptized him. Verses 36 and 38. And as they were going along the road, they came to, as, as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. The man was baptized. He was washed with water, which is actually remarkable in this situation because don't forget, they're in the desert. That's what verse 26 said. And yet, even in the desert, God provided water for this man to be baptized. And there's a lot going on there theologically that I don't have time to get into, but just think about that. Meditate on it. So the man asked to be baptized, and how, how did he even know about baptism? How did he know about this practice? Remember, he's an outsider. He's not a part of this world. Why does he ask to be baptized? And again, the text doesn't explicitly say. It's possible that Philip explained baptism to him when, when he was sharing the good news about Jesus. Uh, or what I like to think happened is that he picked it up while he was reading through Isaiah. Uh, remember, the passage that he quoted was from Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, but the pericope, or the poem that was quoted, actually starts at the end of Isaiah 52. And in Isaiah 52:15, it says that the servant of the Lord shall sprinkle many nations. And so perhaps... The man had read that, and after talking to Philip, it clicked. I'm from a different nation than Isaiah, but he says that I can still be sprinkled, so let's do this. What prevents me from being baptized? And so the man is baptized. He's washed with water in the name of the triune God. His ingrafting into Jesus and the benefits of the covenant of grace are signified and sealed to him. His baptism goes hand in hand with his conversion. His old way of life, his old beliefs, his old allegiances, they're washed away, and he is clean and holy and righteous and made new. He's baptized. Now, you might be wondering, you know, we've talked about baptism before. You know, I thought new life baptized children, and we do. But we also baptize anyone older, teen, young, adult, adult, elderly, whatever, if they've never been baptized before and they profess faith. You know, let's say some 25-year-old guy uh, doesn't come from a Christian family, has never been baptized, but he converts to Christianity. We would baptize him then at age 25. And then, because he's in the covenant community now, if he were to have any children, they would automatically be in the covenant community, and we would baptize them then when they're born. But we definitely also baptize anyone older when they profess faith, if they've never been baptized before. We actually really hope 
that that sort of thing happens because it means that the gospel message is spreading. You know, it means that entire family trees are being taken off the path of condemnation and being grafted into the tree of life. And so we really hope that we get to baptize adults. Uh, You know, if you know someone, if you have the privilege of seeing someone place their faith in Christ, bring them to church, bring them to any church so they can receive the sign and seal of the covenant of grace that they've just been engrafted into through Christ. Now, before I wrap up this point, let me just make a few observations about this evangelistic moment that perhaps you can take to heart in your own opportunities to evangelize. Um, Did you notice how vastly different Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch are from one another? You know, Philip is a middle-class Hellenistic Jewish man. He's a lay leader in the early church, you know, maybe a deacon, you could say, or a proto-deacon. He was one of the men appointed in Acts 6. And uh, the Ethiopian eunuch is, on the other hand, a black African who's been sexually altered. He serves in the queen's court, so he's likely quite wealthy because of it. And so these are two totally different types of people. And so you may be tempted to think that, you know, you're not really in a position to share the good news about Jesus with someone else because you're so different than them, you know, racially, culturally, socioeconomically, sexually, whatever. Uh, But our story kind of knocks down all those excuses. If God can use Philip to share the good news with the Ethiopian eunuch, then he can use anyone to reach anyone. In fact, all evangelism is actually between people who are totally different because for Christians, what we believe, the gospel of Jesus, uh, it's the most important thing that we believe. And if we're evangelizing, we're talking to someone who rejects that or who doesn't accept it. And that's, at that time, the most important thing about them, their lack of belief. And so all evangelism is between two people who are on vastly different pages about what the most important thing in the world is. And so you can't let differences be what stop you. There will be differences by definition. Uh, What's more, though, Uh, The gospel only spreads and fills the world when it's shared between cultures and nations, between people who are different from one another. You know, that's the whole point of this section in Acts. The gospel is spreading beyond just one culture and one nation. It's not staying in Jerusalem and Israel. It's going out to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, to all nations. But even though there will be differences, there's also going to be common ground. For one, All people are sinful and in need of a savior. That's true no matter whether you believe or don't believe, and it's a starting point for common ground and humility as you share. Um, In our passage, uh, the common ground was that the Ethiopian eunuch was returning from worship in Jerusalem and reading Isaiah, which, let's be honest, is pretty convenient for Philip, right? We all wish that someone would be straight up asking us what the Bible means, but nonetheless, there was common ground that the Spirit provided that Philip was able to you know, jump on and use to share the good news about Jesus. And even though that almost sounds too good to be true, I bet you've had moments where someone says something or does something that you know was a pretty good on-ramp to a spiritual conversation, you know, a good opportunity to talk about what Jesus means to you and could mean to them. The Holy Spirit provides common ground moments like this. You've seen them before. And so the question is, will you take advantage of them? Will you take that step of faith to, you know, not dominate the conversation, not overtake the conversation, but build upon where they've already taken it? You know, that thing that you just said, that's really interesting, and it resonates with me. 
You know, I've felt that need before, or, you know, when I've been disappointed like that, when I've been hurt like that, or mourning like that, or in that kind of pain, or longing for what you're longing for, I've actually found that Jesus meets me right there, and here's how. Fill in the blank, you know. All evangelism will take place between people who are different, but who the Lord provides a common ground for. And you can know for sure that the gospel always is the answer for meeting people's needs, for healing their wounds, for fulfilling their longings, whatever. You can know for sure the gospel will be the answer in those types of conversations. And it's exactly what it was for the Ethiopian eunuch. And that takes us to our our final point, an everlasting name. You know, eventually, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch go their separate ways. Verses 39 through 40, And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns till he came to Caesarea. Philip kept sharing the gospel, and the Ethiopian eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Rejoicing in Jesus, rejoicing in the gospel, rejoicing in how the good news of Jesus had been exactly what he was looking for. And what was the Ethiopian eunuch looking for exactly? You know, what need did the gospel meet for him? What wound did it heal? What longing did it fulfill? Well, in his day, you know, meaning and significance for most people was directly tied to family and the social, social standing of one's family. You know, things like leaving a legacy behind, passing something on to descendants. But the Ethiopian eunuch could not do that. He would never have family or children or descendants. And so he took a thousand-mile journey to Jerusalem, to the temple, clearly searching for something, looking for meaning and significance and transcendence, something beyond himself. And when he got to Jerusalem to worship, he most likely wasn't let into the temple. You know, he probably showed up with prayers to offer, supplies to make burnt offerings, maybe animals to sacrifice. And when he got there, they probably told him, no, you need to stay outside. You know why? Well, there's all sorts of rules and regulations in the Old Testament about who could and couldn't get into the temple. And these were meant to show a spiritual reality, a spiritual lesson, that God is holy and people are sinful and they need to be cleansed in order to come to him. And so there would be rituals and rites to become clean and to be able to enter the temple, you know, ritual washings and sprinklings and the like. And for most people, this is how they were able to worship. But for some people, there was no way. They were permanently excluded from the temple, and one such type of person was eunuchs. Deuteronomy 23.1 states that no castrated person could ever enter the temple. And, you know, to our ears, this is going to sound like a, you know, juvenile or maybe even crude joke, um, which actually says more about us and our immaturity than God or Scripture. But the point was that eunuchs were cut off from the temple. And so when the man went to Jerusalem, he probably still couldn't find access to the connection and transcendence and significance and meaning that he was looking for. He was still cut off. And so he's journeying back home, probably 
devastated, probably confused, probably wishing that his life had gone another way, wondering whether the sacrifice he made for his job in the royal court and the riches that came with it were worth it. And he's reading through Isaiah, still searching, still trying to figure it out. And he's in Isaiah 53, which is quoted in our passage in Greek from the, from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. So what we read, what we read in our passage is an English translation of the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Um, but if you want to go directly from Hebrew to English, uh, the phrase that we would read would be, for his life, the, the phrase that we read in Greek, for his life is taken away from the earth, would more directly be translated, he was cut off out of the land of the living. His life was taken away, is what the Greek's translation would be, the he, direct from Hebrew, he was cut off from the land of the living. So the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53, and he's like, who is this person who knows what it's like to be cut off? Is it the prophet himself? Is it somebody else? I need to know because nobody in my life knows what it's like for me. But I think that the person the prophet is writing about knows what it's like to be cut off. Keeps reading through Isaiah, gets to Isaiah 54, one chapter later, Isaiah 54, 1. He reads, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate will be more than the children of she who is married, says the Lord. Sing, O barren one. You know, the female parallel to the eunuch, the woman who cannot bear children. They're not exactly equivalent situations, but if anyone knows the sorrows of the eunuch, it's the barren one. What does the Lord say to the barren one? Sing. Break forth into singing. Cry aloud. Why? Because the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of she who is married. Remember, God has a special place in his heart for barren women. Throughout redemptive history, it's the wombs of barren women that time and time again the Lord chooses to knit together his servants until finally he takes it one step further and sends his son through a virgin womb. So the Ethiopian eunuch is reading about the hope that the Lord gives for the barren, and he's beginning to stir with anticipation. If there's hope for the barren, then maybe, just maybe, there's hope for someone like me. Please, God, please let there be hope for me. He turns another page, two chapters later. Isaiah 56, 3 through 8, and he can't believe it. A message of hope for someone exactly like him. A message of hope for foreigners and eunuchs. Isaiah 56, 3 through 8. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, who hold fast to my covenant, I will give I will give him in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring in to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted 
on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcast of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. A name better than sons and daughters, an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Burnt offerings and sacrifices that will be accepted, a house of prayer for all peoples, hope for the Ethiopian eunuch, hope for the man who knew better than anyone what it meant to be cut off, cut off physically, cut off sexually, cut off generationally, cut off ethnically, cut off religiously. Hope in the good news of Jesus who let himself be cut off, cut off from life so that the Ethiopian eunuch could be brought in and gathered into the people of God, into eternal life, given an everlasting name that shall not be cut off, a name better than sons and daughters, called a child of God. That's the Ethiopian eunuch's hope. That's why he went home rejoicing. You know, most people think uh, that you can trace the history of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church all the way back to this man. Most likely, he went back to his people and in his joy told them the good news about Jesus. You know, Martin Luther actually cites the Ethiopian church as a true church not submitted to Rome as part of his case for leaving the Roman Catholic Church and starting the Reformation. And 2,000 years later, the Ethiopian, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church is still going strong. You know, this passage, this passage and other passages of hope like it from Isaiah or Revelation or wherever, uh, when we read them, we can often wonder, are these purely spiritual hopes or is there any hope this side of heaven? And I do think that primarily the hope is on the other side of heaven. It's in life everlasting, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing this side of heaven. You know, we get glimpses. You know, we get a glimpse right here of how the Ethiopian eunuch has been given an everlasting name greater than sons and daughters. He's in the Bible today. He may have not had physical offspring, but he's had spiritual offspring through the Ethiopian church. You know, you also have hope both now and in the life to come. And what's most meaningful or compelling varies for each one of us, but the gospel of Jesus speaks to each and every one of us. It gives us hope now and it gives us hope in the future. What hope is it giving you? Jesus cut himself off from life so that we never would be. He's making what's old new. He's pooling the waters of baptism in dry deserts. He's bringing fruit from barren lands. He's ensuring his people are never cut off by giving them an everlasting name, by giving them his name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for sending your son so that he could be cut off from life that we never would be because of that. Father, we pray that your spirit would fill us, that we would grow into people who have empathy and sympathy and love and care for those among us who in one way or another live a life similar to that of a eunuch. We also pray, Lord, that you would help us to stick close to those who don't know you yet, that we would grow as little evangelists in the lives of people you've put around us. But yeah, most of, Lord, most of all, Lord, we thank you that you have given us an everlasting name. Your son's name is on us, and it will endure forever. It's in his name we pray. Amen.